If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Linda Traw. Linda's been involved with horses in 12 countries. She's been a competitor, trainer and coach and been breeding horses since a young age and is still competing, training, coaching and breeding horses. So how are you today, Linda? I'm wonderful today. How can you be in this beautiful country here? It is, isn't it? Yep, yep. And I'm sure you're having much the same weather as we are. Linda, we normally start people off with your favourite quote. That sort of gets them to get to know you a little bit quicker. So if you'd like to talk about your favourite quote, but also a bit about your favourite quote, you know how you came to get that quote and what it means to you? Sure. Uh, My favourite quote is, sit still and let your horse shine. A horse is about 10 times our weight. So we can't actually really improve all that much of what the natural sound and ability is of the horse. But what we can is allow the horse to be the best he can only in a way. And I think that is one of the most common things I see is people try too hard but they interfere with the horse's balance. But if you actually sit still and work your body much more like a metronome or like a pacemaker or a heartbeat and just keep sensing what the horse is doing and helping along rather than forcing it along, I think that you get the best out of your horse. Yeah, yeah, and I think you said it right when you said comparing your weight to your horse's weight. It's not like you're going to be able to push the horse around. You sit still, you give the horse the aids, you train the horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Linda, I know you started with horses from quite a young age. Tell me a bit about your earliest memories with horses. I think my very earliest was when I was three years old and I was given my first pony for my birthday, which was a typical farmer-looking shepherd pony as wide as it was high. It was 18 years old, it had one foot in place, and it came with a bridle, and the bridle was a Pelham-Bitter-Chin chain because I think my father, who was a very good horse and was well aware of the two-year-old child, has, of course, very little strength to control the horse. So for him, most important was that I could stop the horse. And I think that's still a, a very rule to create a situation where the rider can cope with the horse and the horse can cope with the rider. And um, I was, of course, with a company bareback for uh, five years. And after five years of riding, not so bad, but with many ponies bareback, I, uh, I earned my saddle. Yeah. So that was actually my first memory of getting that saddle Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. You know, the rider's got to be able to cope with the horse. The horse has got to be able to cope with the rider because so often we get beautiful horses that are beautiful horses, but 
we may not be able to cope with them. And I think that's important to know that. And as a coach, we tend to buy horses that we think are good for us, not what we think is going to be the best one for the student. That is absolutely true. And that took me many years to uh, to make a better judgment than that. I think I'm a lot better in judgment now than I was 20 years ago. Yep, yep. Yeah. What about your career with horses? Have you always been with horses? You were a teacher at one stage, weren't you, before you, you sort of got back into full-time horses? Yes, that's right. Uh, my parents, having, you know, uh, been farmers and, and also working horse business, they knew that that was really not an easy life to take. So they encouraged me always to get a real job and then just have one or two horses on the side. And uh, as a result, I chose primary school teaching. I always liked teaching and working with, with, with kids, with people. And uh, I mostly thought of her being a primary school teacher, to be honest, about all the free weekends and the school holidays, which would leave me extra time for the horse business. So there was an ulterior motive behind it as well. Once I graduated and I got my degree, I actually went to America for just three months to get uh, the horse business career out of my system. And then I said, I've been there, done that, and now I'm ready to be a school teacher. The only time I got one time was in America, I got more of a job opportunities uh, in the horse business, including on my flight back home to Europe again. And I ended up as a staff manager. So all I've only done one year of school teaching, and from there on, I have actually always worked in the horse industry. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, I hear a lot of people that take a year off before they go to university and end up working with horses full time or get their qualification and then, like you, just go on and work in the horse industry anyway. Yeah. If someone's going to start in the horse industry, what sort of core skills or character traits do you think that they need to get started in the horse industry? I think you've got to be able to move quick. Mm-hmm. You've got to be fit and able to move quick because you have to rely on your reflexes a lot. Many times you can't just overthink things. You've got to be able to move quick. The other reason is also you've got to be able to move quick because there's lots of work to be done. We have to cram a lot of uh, work and skill within one day. So that's important that uh, when it comes to your mentality, you must have a sense of humour. If you don't have a sense of humour, you won't last. Yes, I think so. I think so. What do you think is the best thing about working in the horse industry? You're always outdoors. Not a single day is the same. Um, Mind you, outdoors can also be negative, of course, depending where you are. But here in Queensland, it's be okay. Yeah. Uh, but a single day is the same. It is all. There's always a new day. There's always new challenges, and it keeps me on my toes. Of course, you're physically active, so you're fit and you're healthy. And uh, uh, I think the other thing is also is you're so busy. There is no chat. No to get into mischief. Yeah, yeah. And you're recommending that then for teenagers that maybe if they've got horses they could less chance of getting into mischief? Absolutely, absolutely. No time for that, no money for that. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, what about people who've influenced you? Because, you know, you've started off, you've talked about your father. What about other people who've influenced you and helped you along your way? Yeah, that's a good 
question. And of course, I could mention many names of many people around the world that I've been working with or working for. But just to keep it more local, is, uh, I'd like to mention three names. But the first was Vince Corvey. Yep. I, I've worked with Vince Corvey uh, for a number of years on and off. And from the first, very first five minutes onward, I think we got along very well. And the, uh, the good thing about Twins was I did bring two horses to his place. Uh, both horses, he gave me a completely different lesson, which is how it should be, because mm. those two horses were different from each other. Um, the other two names I really need to mention, and they have been a major influence on my coaching and the clientele that I deal with nowadays. And that is Bert and Marion Hartock. They uh, ran the riding school both back, uh, you know, in the late 80s up until 2000. And um, uh, they were really tuned into what the majority of riders, which is people that learn to ride at a later age, and are beginner riders or have not grown up in the country, do not have the natural structures. They were absolute masters in understanding and dealing and coaching those people. It was a completely different type of person that I was dealing with normally. I always dealt with a professional trainer. So for me to deal with a hobby rider or the suburban person with the office job that would sit on a horse once a week, for me, that was completely new. And they really gave me insight and mentored and coached me in how to sort of deal with that and understand that and and sympathize with that. And uh, if it wasn't their skill in mentoring me as a coach, I would not have the life that I've got now today. Mm, mm. And I think earlier on you talked about, you know, getting the right horse to suit the rider, the rider to suit the horse. But I think also, too, as a coach, we've got to look at the whole situation and realize that, not all our riders are going to go to the Olympics. Some of them ride for recreation. They ride for different purposes. They ride for for health, for, you know, um, yes. lots of reasons. Yep, yep. And to make it commercial, sometimes you're teaching people who don't aspire to the heights that you'd like them to, but they're just doing it because they enjoy their time with their horse and, and just – you know, from a yes. commercial activity, that's quite a good commercial activity. Um, yeah, and as you say, to have the lifestyle that you have now where you can get outside every day and you can work with horses and you can teach a lot, That's it's a really good uh, understanding that you've got there. Yeah, yeah. Linda, can you tell us about a horse who has influenced you, helped you in your career? A horse that has influenced me is actually a number of them. It's hard to say, but they all had one thing in common. They were very dominant matriarch mares. And a, a, a dominant matriarch mare is a proud horse. It uh, is much more aware than the average horse. It rules the herd. And uh, it is majestic. Um, it's got an ego. And it's often very athletic as well. And what those mares have taught me is really how to be a thinking rider and how to find ways to work with the horse. Because a good mare, at best, she works with you. She doesn't work under you or for you. 
she works with you. Mm-hmm. And so to find that real partnership in your riding and to become a real thinking and mentally aware rider, it has been the, it was the dominant mare that taught the most. Just tell us a little bit about the dominant mare, because you've worked a lot in a stud situation, a herd situation, about the dominant mare and the stallion and their roles within the herd. Yes. So I've also worked with wild horses. And unlike what most people think, it is not the stallions that rule the herd, it's the mares. The dominant mare, it's, she often doesn't do it by herself. She has got fellow mares to to rule the herd with her. And sometimes they take a bit of turns. They look out for each other as well. The stallions have a bit more the role of being the bouncer of the herd and the, the physical protector. But the mares actually rule the routine and how the day-to-day runs and, and how the other horses should behave and fit in there. So, uh, yes, the dominant mare is a bit like a school principal. And uh, and uh, for that reason, if you look at sports, there have been many mares that have been very successful in uh, in sports, both in racing as well as in equestrian. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good, and I think that's good to introduce just that little bit of a tip of the way they work within the herd. Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of experience with foaling horses. Just tell us briefly about foaling and how many foals have you been with when they've been born. It's over 250 okay. foals, yep. and that yep. was both in the farm where I grew up yes. as well as in the form of stock manager that I was overseas and here as well. Mm-hmm. And the following down uh, process is uh, um, one of my – the pride that I have is that I've never missed one fall. Mm-hmm. I've never had a mare falling that took me by surprise. I always knew it was coming, and yep. I monitored it, and – and I was there and ready to help. And as a result, uh, I have been able to pull foals through that otherwise if there wasn't that extra human intervention, the foals would not have survived. So as a result, we got a high success rate. Um, it's a very proud moment. It's always very exciting and a surprise, of course, what the fall is going to be like. And if the fall and the mother, if they will bond together well and if everything is functioning and working. And yes, many a times I had to help things along a bit and make it easier for both mare and fall. Um, uh, the One of the falls that really is in my memory is one that we called Stumpy. Because Stumpy was born six premature, and a foal being an active baby when it's born, it can't be put in an incubator when it's premature. So most premature foals die because their bodies can't cope with their active mind uh, as they're born while their body's not ready yet. But this one was six weeks premature, and according to, at that time, the rules when it happened, no foal of that prematurity had survived in Australia. And managed to pull it through. Um, I was with the fall 24-7 for the first four weeks, so I fed it day and night while it was in the stable with the mare to keep the bonding happening until it was big and strong enough to actually drink un- unassisted of the mare. Yeah. So, yes, that is a, that was a special story and a very proud moment. He became an international event at a fairly young age. Yeah. So he yeah. did well. That's good. That's good. 
Tell us about your challenges. You know, your challenges are traveling and working in so many different countries and I suppose not just adopting to the countries, but adopting to the language and the culture and and everything else. Just talk to us a little bit about that. Mm. Yes. Well, of course, you go to countries, not just the culture, but also the language is different. Then I speak a few languages, but not all of the languages that I've been to. And so you become a bit Italian in the way you talk. You got to use your hands and your feet and your facial expressions. But sometimes you um, <laughs> that can get lost in translation as well because certain uh, facial uh, expressions and hand gestures have a very different meaning in some of, for instance, the Asian cultures. So where I sometimes would gesture things with a very different intention, it did get interpreted the wrong way. And at times I was out of line because of that, and you you learn quickly. Um, At the end, I always found my way around it, and people were, you know, understanding that I did have the best intentions. But that was one of the challenges. Um, I got actually one very interesting story of uh, a man in Japan that I was training his horse during the week and he came uh, for his lessons on weekends. And uh, I asked him a number of questions and the way he answered made me, in his broken English, made me believe that he was quite an experienced rider. And as the horse started off, it was a bit tight in the back and peak rooting a bit. I said, you know what the best thing is, is right and forward. So let's just go and push it through that. And I made this poor man canter. Now, fortunately, it had a Western saddle on, so he could hold on to the horn. And I made the horse canter, and I made the rider canter, and the, the, the guy just went along. And then after some time, I figured out from somebody who translated to me in the sideline that this was the man's very first ride on a horse oh, ever. Oh, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, sometimes things get lost in translation. He did well, he stayed off. So there you go. Like he um, had that big Western and saddle. And, of course, again, in the Japanese culture, in the, yeah, Western saddle health, mm-hmm. and the Japanese culture, you always agree and accept what, you know, in this case, the coach who for them is on a higher level, says you do it, you don't question it. You know, anybody in our culture would have said, well, hang on, <laughs> I've never done this before. Yep. So those are the things that you you come across. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about a common fault you see with your riders, and I'd like you to talk about the suburban-type riders, you know, not riders that you see hmm. that have been born on a horse or that have had a lot of experience with horses, but those that ride for recreation. What's a common fault that you see with them? I, I think because of the fact that they were not born in it, they don't have sort of that sixth sense or that reflex or stock sense, as I like to call it, for, for horses and animals. And they do have a logic behind it. And, of course, there are some you know, generic uh, rules and, and and things that, that you can teach with horse riding. But there's always a moment that it goes a bit different than planned. And you've got to have a certain level of adjustability and it has to be quick. Uh, eventually, it has to become a reflex. And that is, of course, difficult for the person that hasn't grown up with it. So... Um, there's always so many exceptions to the rules. And of course, it gets confusing. Ideally, what they'd like is that they go through the amount of knowledge and theory that I can give them, and they can digest that in their mind and then eventually get their body to do it. 
and then they hope for the very same outcome in the horse all the time. And that's not how it works, unfortunately. And especially while they are thinking about what they have to do, by the time their bodies do it, the horse is further in motion. Yep. So yep. It, yep. It, it wasn't applicable anymore. And the only way to learn it is by doing it and doing it and doing it, and eventually you pick it up. Mm-hmm. I did for that reason also find as soon as riders manage to ride twice a week instead of just once a week, they learn a lot quicker, not just twice as quick, sometimes three, four times quicker because the body and the mind is a bit more tuned in for it. But they are not all in the situation where they can afford or have the time to ride, you know, more than once a week. Sure, sure. What about horses for that first up beginner type rider? What, what sort of horse should they be getting? What should they be looking at? Well, at least one has got to know what they're doing. So if the ride is not experienced, you've got to have a very experienced horse. And uh, I'd be looking at all the horse, one that's been there, done that, and uh, it has been owned by by a family, and the various family members have been able to ride it. And it's been out and about on shows or competitions or trail rides. But you'd like a horse that's been there, done that. And I really want to urge people to put a value on their own welfare and their neck or that of their children. And I think a first horse is allowed to cost a serious amount of money because it is really safety that's important. And I so often come across people buying a really cheap horse uh, as their first horse. And I encourage people to really think twice. What is the value of your neck and your well-being or that of your child? And um, yes, you, you need a horse that knows what it's doing, that has experience. And also, when you buy a first horse, and even if it's a wonderful, experienced horse, have access to somebody that can really help you. Be at an adjustment place where people can guide you along or where you're not on your own. And um, this is a situation that overseas, it's much more common to have horses at an adjustment place because of the lack of room. Where here, many people buy the first horse um, and have it for their own acreage. And gee, there's a lot involved and there's a lot to learn. And I think it helps have guidance while you got it, plus buy a horse that knows more than you do. Yep, yep. I think that's good. That's good. What about books? Have you got a book for people that you could recommend that's going to help their complement their training, not just the suburban riders, but other listeners as well? Hmm. Um, just and ones that may have helped you along your way. Yes, and and although I noticed many riding technical books out there, and and I have actually not been all much involved with that, but the ones that stick to my mind are more the autobiography books. And it's, uh, for instance, Monty Roberts and uh, Gillian Rolton. They uh, wrote books about, you know, their lifetime, the trials and tribulations, the difficulties they came across, how they had to find their own ways of doing it because, you know, they grew up in certain set ways where they were taught this is how you do it. And we've always done it that way, but they had to find their own way of doing it. It worked for them. And they had to find a way to work with the horse and not dominate the horse. And those, yeah, it appealed to me because 
I can find myself in that, and I can recognize myself in that, and I recognize many people's situation in that. So I think those books are inspiring, and also teaches you that you never stop learning. You know, it's an ongoing process, and being around horses and animals in general, not every day is the same. Every day is a bit different, and you have to work with that. So it's those type of books that I can recommend to people are enjoyable to read, but also a bit of a life lesson. What are you looking forward to now? What does your future hold? What does my future hold is uh, I'm saying for a life that I've got to work smart and not harder. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm still working yes. towards too. I, over the years, my ambition has changed. Uh, I worked on a farm in America with two and a half thousand horses. And I, I would measure success by having many, many horses in the field. Yes. And of course, many horses means it costs a lot of money and your income has to come with different business in order to support two and a half thousand horses. Mm-hmm. So my ambition has changed now. i rather have a few good horses than an entire paddock full of all sorts of horses. So my ambition is, is to actually have, give more lessons and ride less horses a day but ride every horse better because I can concentrate on the individuality of the horse more rather than getting to a large number of horses a day. Uh, the largest number of horses a day I had to train was 28 horses a day where you would jump from one back to the other. This was on a racetrack in America. I had no desire to go back to that. Um, I rather buy, you know, a maximum of three or maybe four horses a day and do them real justice. Mm-hmm. That is my desire, to ride a few horses really well, keep the variety in the training. So more lessons, less training, and that is what I'm working towards too. And I'm slowly but surely getting there. Good, good. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Okay. Now, Linda, just in a few sentences, would you be able to summarise your philosophy with horses? Oh, my philosophy with horses. Mm. Um, There is no time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's what I've learned. There is no time frame. Um, we've got young horse competition, and that is really for an exceptional four-year-old or an exceptional five-year-old. Um, but if you look at really successful horses, often they had a very controversial story and start behind them, like nobody would hear about when killed in twelve, for instance. And actually similar things with people. If you look at the Olympic riders, a number of the highly successful riders had a very different background. So it isn't in every horse and every rider has their own individual journey. And my philosophy is, is you can only compete against your own previous performance. So really just work within your own, within your own path and your own time frame and your horse's time frame. And enjoy every minute of it because your horse and your story is unique 
and enjoy your uniqueness and do not compare to somebody else enjoy your own uniqueness and be fully in favor and and behind what you do and yes don't be competitive towards others just be in favor and completely behind what you do and enjoy it and uh, i think that way we are fair to ourselves and we are fair to our horse okay and uh, we enjoy it in the meantime yep 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 all right, that's good. Now, Linda, I'd love to have you coming back some other time. You've got a wealth of experience with the time that you spent with your mares, with the foaling down. I'm sure that you've got a lot of other tips that you could give us specifically on that subject. So we'd love to have you coming back again, if that's okay. Absolutely. Thanks very much for your time today. Uh, it was my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Glennis. Thanks, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, if you're still there, you probably know that I'm absolutely passionate about education within the horse industry. That's why I host this podcast. My other venture is Online Horse College. Have a look now at onlinehorsecollege.com and I'll see you over there. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability if you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, if you enjoyed rate, this and podcast, subscribe. Then please if leave you'd your like comment any changes below. or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 